Hello and welcome to another episode of Downton Gabby, Life After Downton Abbey. Yes, there is life after Downton Abbey. And today we are going to be catching up on Belgravia and Dr. Thorne and inviting a special guest to come on and talk about teen shows and why they appeal to women. I'm Shannon in Oakland. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. And I'm Teresa in Brooklyn. Before we start talking about an update on Julian's latest projects, I just want everyone to know that he was a Brexit voter. He was for leaving the EU. Oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, it didn't really surprise me, but the thought did enter my head. I wonder if Julian voted for Brexit, and I Googled it, and he was a vocal supporter of it. I don't know how he feels watching the aftermath, but uh, I thought that was interesting given all of his themes about change. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how he feels agreeing with Donald Trump. Yeah, that doesn't seem agreeing with this new money crass fellow. <laughs> That would really sting if I were him, I think. There's a, there's a chance that Julian is having some sort of identity crisis right now as mm. we speak over this issue. So throw that out there and, and say, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. I'm wondering how he feels. I'm not surprised, but I am disappointed. So did everyone finish Dr. Thorne? I sure didn't. <laughs> it's only four episodes. Yeah, it's less than three it's hours of your so... life. so it's literally I after the second episode I was like I don't even know why I would continue watching this well everything that you think will probably happen happens like there's there's really no twist like the only thing that was a twist was when Ian McShane died too soon and I was like I just went through this on Game of Thrones yeah, so I don't yeah. let, let Ian McShane just be on the show I so angry right now. Thank you. But this bait and switch with Ian McShane is just really troubling. I know. I'm not okay with this trend. He's um, going to show up on Catastrophe next as like somebody's <laughs> dad and then have a heart attack 10 minutes in. He would be great as Sharon's like foul mouthed uncle or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That would be great. Well, and I just could not get past Allison Brie and this fake giggle that she's doing constantly. And it's just, I couldn't take it. She's a little miscast. It was bad. And then, you know, and then, of course, Miss Thorne, the blonde that, you know, he's in love with. Oh, she was horrible. She was so boring. A, maybe the story's just not that exciting. Don't know if the source material's that exciting. B, I just thought it was really badly cast. And the costumes just couldn't, it wasn't enough for me. Well, I wouldn't, I don't feel that harsh about it. I watched it and I found it definitely diverting and definitely something nice to do when you want to take your mind off mm -hmm. the world. Um, and I liked some of the people. I, I did like Tom Hollander as Dr. Thorne a lot. I liked some of the supporting characters, the parents and the, you know, mean sisters and cousins. Um, mm -hmm. As was Many of these things, and I'll, we'll talk about this with Belgravia, like the central figures tend to be the most boring. Yeah. You know, all the action sort of swirls around them and they're just there and not terribly interesting. Um, and I really did not like the evil son, the drunken oh, evil. This was like a high school play level performance with yeah. his, like pouring his brandy and tossing it back and being like, you people don't understand me. I was, I was appalled by that yeah. performance. It was really, really bad. And then 
finally, and I think this is maybe right out of the book, but the fact that people have to like stop the action and say something like, I never felt any ill will for him. I'm sorry he's dead. And it's like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, really? You never felt any ill will for him when he was like sexually harassing you? <laughs> <laughs> Threatening okay. to ruin everybody, you know? like Threatening to turn your most beloved person in the world out onto the streets with nothing. Yeah. You felt no ill will. Like, okay. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Characters who are that pure of heart are boring. Like, come on, Mary Thorne. You know you felt some ill will. Yeah, they're yeah. really boring. Like, I actually thought Dr. Thorne was... It was more interesting because he was, I think, had a little naughty streak in him. Oh, yeah. And especially him, like, likely hooking up with Alison Brie after the credits roll was I did like that. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was diverting. And actually, I know that um, we've heard from a bunch of people um, on Facebook and Twitter that they really, really loved it. Oh, well, I, I liked it. I mean, I... I don't know if it was going to be an ongoing show. I can't see myself sticking with it. But knowing that it was only like three hours, I was like, sure, this is three hours of my life. It's fine. Like it was it was cute. Yeah, <laughs> I liked enough of it to finish it. And I thought the guy who plays the lead love interest is at least extremely adorable, even though his character's kind of boring. So there's that to hold on to. But compared to Downton, where the characters just leap off the screen... It was just so muted. I think it felt shallow. It felt like a shallow adaptation of the novel. And I haven't read this particular novel, but I'm like, uh, I don't know that I would want to to dive into that much time with these characters if, they, if there isn't something more to hang on to. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Maybe the source material isn't that interesting. I haven't read this trial book either. But yeah, these, none of these characters felt fresh. None of them really felt that defined. I know you didn't finish it, but it the I would say the last like half hour when all uh, everything you're expecting to happen finally does happen. It is satisfying still, and the scene when you know the um, cranky old mom finds out that the very woman she didn't want her son to marry is inheriting all of this money like that is <laughs> yeah. actually really funny the way they do it. Really well done, and. Uh, I thought overall, like, the payoffs were worth the slogging through some of the more boring bits. I agree. Even though it wasn't unpredictable, it was exactly like, it was like watching a good rom-com where, like, you know what's going to happen, but it's still worth it in the end because the way that the payoffs come is very entertaining. I actually watched that particular scene a couple times because I enjoyed it so much. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was, I was laughing my ass off at that scene. It was really well done. And you saw it coming a mile away and you're just anticipating it like, oh, this is going to be really good. And then it was, yeah. Yeah, And it was. (laughs) But that's because there's content. So (laughs) there's actual content. Yeah, something actually happened. (laughs) A lot of scenes where nothing much happened, unfortunately. So. So Belgravia, um, I thoroughly enjoyed. I really like the whole series. I I enjoyed it as an audiobook with Juliet Stevenson telling the story and I thought it was great. I also enjoyed all the payoffs at the end. Um I thought the characters were much more interesting than Dr. Thorne. Um and a much more interesting milieu, I guess, um in terms of the middle versus upper class. Yeah. I have heard very little about it 
out there in the world and I'm wondering if it didn't do well or people aren't really talking about it. Probably people might be experiencing what I've been experiencing is I really like it. I love the audiobook, but the limitations with the app have made it really difficult for me to finish it because unless I'm driving the entire time of that episode, the app won't remember where I'm at. So the next day I go try and, you know, even if I leave that app open to try and get my car to commute and listen to where I left off, it won't remember. And so it's this whole rigmarole mm-hmm, yeah. to get it back. And so what I'd have to do is start on the audiobook and then have to flip through very slowly on the app, on the iPad to finish right. a chapter to be able to listen to the next one. And it's, it honestly was such a turnoff that I haven't finished it. I'm really enjoying it. But it's like, I don't know how to fit it in because the technology is not adaptive. Yeah, it's not a great app. And I was reading an interview with uh, Julian Fellows about why he did Belgravia and stuff. And it's just so clear that he probably never even tried the app himself. Yeah. Uh, This is a direct quote. You can get it in iPlay, your iTiddly push, your iPhone, I whatever. Like... I tiddly push like that's your joke. <laughs> like if I was trying to parody Julian Fellows, I couldn't come up with the language that he uses to actually talk about this stuff. It's a shame because I think this is actually like a really good way to tell a story. Like there's a reason that this was very popular mm-hmm. for novels for a very long time, right? It's quite satisfying to like. I love getting the little email that's like the new chapter's up. I'm like, ooh, the new chapter's up. You know. I know. I would do that with books like it would it I feel like I was actually more efficient at listening and reading this than I am with a book that's sitting by my nightstand (laughs) in a weird way (laughs) because it was like an event in my week the new the new thing the new chapter of Belgravia um but yeah overall it was it was more of a lark it's sort of like in between Dr. Thorne and Down Abbey I think as far as character depth and like story predictability and stuff but Because I felt like most of the beats, there's a few good twists in the beginning, but once you really get into it, like, you're pretty much just waiting for the inevitable to happen. Uh, Right. And yet, I was, I enjoyed myself all the way through. I I wasn't feeling bored by it, although once in a while a character would start, you know, talking about something that I already knew from the previous chapter. Like, people aren't skipping chapters, just keep going. It's fine. (laughs) Well, I have to say... I just, I'm in the middle where they're just fawning over Charles Pope and they're just like, can you believe this little baby is just mad? <laughs> and it's like, him, all he's doing is talking about God. <laughs> he's not that great. And they're just acting like he's like God's gift to women and just the world. And it's just like, I we're not talking about the same person here. Well, you just have to keep remembering that this is like somebody's grandson. I mean, it's really like the connection to Pope has not that much to do with Pope and a lot more to do with like lineage and yeah, know, dead, dead daughters and yeah, uh, you know, family connections and things like that. And yeah, and he's not horrible. But they could have given him more. They could have given him more than one conversation yeah. topic. If he's really going to be that great. <laughs> no, he's really That's boring. True. He's so boring. He, he it has... was kind of hilarious to me, though, because it's not like he has multiple love interests or something, at least. It's just Mariah Gray who's in love with him, and she's 
just as interested in Indian cotton as he is. <laughs> like, it's like one of those that things was where like a couple just has the same obscure interest and they just love each other That's for right. it. That yeah. was actually hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah, like they would love to go LARPing together. Yes, exactly. I can totally see that. <laughs> I don't understand Mariah Gray, except that he's not like a total asshole, you know? Yeah, well, when you're comparing him to John Bellasis, yeah, yeah. he seems great. He seems pretty great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's also the idea, it's like, not quite the same thing, but it's like, you know, Sybil and the chauffeur. She's not completely enamored of her posh life, you know, and mm, she's kind of bored yeah. by the people she meets. And here's this guy who seems really different and interesting and thinks about a world outside of Belgravia, for example. I think if this becomes a miniseries, it could make a really good one. There's definitely, like, the the equivalence to some of the characters in Dr. Thorne, you know, like the son who's ungrateful for his wealth or whatever, who we were saying is a terrible performance. There's a similar character in Oliver in Belgravia, who I think could is actually written with quite a lot of depth, especially yes. with the, the stuff that happens at the end where you sort of really sympathize with him even though he's been behaving terribly yes uh, that could be a very interesting character in a screen version like an actor could really dig into Oliver and he's not even one of the main characters so I think most of these characters are something an actor could bring a lot more depth to just through performance as well so I hope it gets an adaptation at some point I think that'd be great so it is going to be coming out in novel form uh, if you want to wait for that. Otherwise, I feel like the 13 bucks for the app is worth it to listen to it all. It, most of the, it's 11 chapters and most of them are about an hour and a half. So it's like a good product that you're getting. Um, so I, I would recommend it if you enjoy Downton Abbey. I would recommend this before I would recommend Dr. Thorne. But then, of course, that's free on Amazon Prime too. So just for summer, they're both great. All right, so we're going to move on to our next segment where we're going to talk about teen shows and why they appeal to women. And we have a very special guest, uh, Karen Draper. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Karen. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm currently working on a young adult fantasy novel, and I read lots of YA, watch lots of teen dramas on TV, and I blog about media aimed at teen girls and the fandom stuff that surrounds that. Well, I thought we could open with, you know, what was a teen show that was important to you either as a teen or as an adult? One of the ones that really stands out for me is Gilmore Girls. Uh, you know, I, in high school, used to like rush home from the bus stop to catch the reruns that were on ABC Family at 4 p.m. in the afternoons. <laughs> <laughs> and um, even in college, like we would gather in the dorm room if we ever had the TV and go and watch it. And I think it's a great show. It like grows with you because when you're younger, you really relate to like the teen drama aspects of Rory's life and what she's going through and then when you're a bit older you get more into like Lorelai's kind of rom-com story of a career woman who's you know dealing with all this other stuff in her life and trying to balance romance and work and uh yeah I think it's it's got so many great like you know I was out really into Rory Jess back in the day and now I'm into <laughs> Rory Paris you know the, the fandom grows with you I mean, mine's a classic choice, which is my so-called life. So good. It's it's so good. I think it's one of the best written TV shows ever. Um, I remember showing it to the girls I used to babysit when they were 15 and 17, and they were like, what is this show? I've never <laughs> seen anything like this. And I was like, yeah, that's why I'm showing it to you. Um, but I think what... 
I really love the friend breakup between her and Rianne and my favorite scene, one of my favorite scenes ever is when Rianne is giving the monologue of Our Town of Goodbye Clocks and she's really yeah. saying goodbye to her friendship. I mean, I could start tearing up right now. It's so, <laughs> it's so beautiful and that's such a part of adolescence of growing apart from your friends. It's really hard to understand and it's really painful, like a real romantic breakup and I just, I think that show did it the best. When you said friend breakup, I thought you were going to say her breakup with her old friend from when she was mm. younger. Also great. Yeah. Yes. Also really, really good. Yeah. Yes. And, and it is like a romantic breakup. It's got that kind of heartbreak. And um, I really agree. I also, I mean, Jordan Catalano is a conversation unto himself. <laughs> but when they've become uh, close, um, the, I felt so much tension on her behalf sort of wondering yeah. what she was expected to do and what would happen. And um, it was palpable. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was handled incredibly well. Can I just say about my so-called life? Um, when you live in LA, it, the weird thing is having access to some of these screenwriters. So I went to an event at the Writers Guild that was Winnie Holtzman and Jason Kadams in conversation Yay. with each other. And what they had done, because they have worked together on shows, is each of them had picked a scene from the other person's show to read aloud at this event and kind of dissect. And um, Jason Kadams had picked an ep a scene from Life of Brian, uh, the episode that's like from Brian's perspective in uh, My So-Called Life. <laughs> and it is just amazing how well that writing sh holds up. Like this is 20 years later that everyone in this room is reading this scene and talking about a how it works. And it's just universal. It doesn't feel like it's aged a day. That show is amazing. Yeah, and it even touches on, which I think Freaks and Geeks does a great job of this too, is family. Because family is a really big part of your teen years because you're living at home. And you're feeling that you want to break away and you're starting to see your parents as real people. And it's a really uncomfortable thing. And I, I just love that my so-called life really dug into the uncomfortable parts of adolescence but still made it really fun and just a really great show. And it just... I don't know. It goes deeper than I've seen any other show since. Yeah, and speaking of like the friendships, I think that's something that really stands out for me in teen dramas versus like other types of dramas that you have these really close female friendships that are kind of competitive and sort of contentious. And like, you know, you have the classic Rory Paris sort of their academic rivals, but they're also sort of friends. And I think you see that in all these other dramas. And I always love that like as a as a trope of teen dramas. As much as we love our girlfriends, especially when you're younger, there's always a little bit of competitiveness and jealousy. Thanks, society. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say, uh, this is a, it's hard for me to pick, but I think I have to pick Buffy the Vampire Slayer if we're talking about shows from when I was actually a teen, particularly because um, actually I'm still really close with a lot of my girlfriends from high school and we would get together to watch the show every week uh, and to the point where as a shorthand, when one of us is talking to another one from the group, like we will still refer to ourselves as, oh, the Buffies. I was talking to some of the Buffies. <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> like that, that's like how into the show we were back then. It's 15 years later and we still refer to ourselves as the Buffies. Uh, that's adorable. Not that I could like relate to that show on really on any level is particularly because, uh, you know, having a sexy boyfriend was not a problem that I had in high school, <laughs> <laughs> let alone fighting demons or anything else. 
But I think still, um, you know, that show w was really important to see not just a, a character who had, because Buffy is a flawed, flawed character in, a, in beautiful ways. So not just to see a strong female character, but to see how hard it was for her to deal with responsibility, which I think is a big thing as you're growing into adulthood, is how to cope with responsibility. So I was going to pick Buffy because I think Buffy is the all-time greatest teen show, and this has been written about a lot. But the idea that the the things going on in high school layered with the things go coming out of the hellmouth, yeah. you know, and how those things relate, you know, that the terrors of adolescence in high school are manifest in all the demons everywhere, is is really brilliant. And looking at the show through that lens, if that's the only lens you had, because there are a lot, it would it would be absolutely brilliant. And you know, what does Buffy's mom famously say? if you don't go out tonight, it's not the end of the world or something like yeah. that, right? <laughs> I mean, that just kind of capsulizes it for me. Um, I also came to it very late because I didn't watch it until it was on Netflix and it was the very oh. first thing I ever got on Netflix. Wow, um, oh, on it disc. Was, Ooh. <laughs> it was the first and like 400th thing I got on Netflix because <laughs> I just went through like, one after another, I just watched every single show back, you know, my first binge watch of Netflix in my Netflix career and just watched the whole thing. Well, a big reason why we decided to do this topic is because, you know, you watch Buffy as an adult and there's, there is an appeal for adult women to like teen shows. And we kind of wanted to dig into that. And so we wanted to start with, okay, what were the shows that were important to us as teens or adults that really t latch onto that world and then kind of go through some of these specific shows that have had fandom amongst adult women, uh, first and foremost, Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl was one that I binged in my mid-20s, I guess, probably. It had, I don't remember exactly what year it started, but I definitely wa watched the first like three seasons on DVD and then tried to keep watching it, but it kind of went downhill after a while. But yeah, there's something about rich teens too. Mm. It's very weirdly <laughs> appealing. Their drama, the the level of sort of unsupervised independence they can show. Yeah, I feel like Gossip Girl and the OC exist in the same plane of you know you're touching in on this this elite world, but then you also really like the characters within it. Yeah, and they can have power and powerlessness at the same time in a really interesting way. Because they are part of this elite world, they are rich, but they're still kids. Like, they still have to live under their parents' roof. They still have to uh, go to school every day and stuff like that. Uh, something about that is appealing to me. And I think, particularly in Gossip Girl, uh, the core of it is Blair and Serena's friendship, mm -hmm. right? And their frenemy, from friends to frenemies to enemies and back again probably a dozen times over the course of the show. Um, but Blair Waldorf in particular is always a compelling character and having her at the center of all the action is the reason that it, I kept coming back to the show for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely a huge Blair Waldorf. Like she was one of my top characters, um, in TV really. And like, I love Gossip Girl for the way that it just, it does all those tropes that, you know, so familiar from teen stuff like love triangles and the bad boy. Um, but it, and it doesn't 
try to like reinvent them. It just does them really well the way they are, which I, I really appreciate. So we should get into that. I know you have a lot of opinions about the bad boy trope. So <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, and Chuck Bass is one of the best bad boys. And I loved it when Blair and Chuck were starting to get together because it was like, yes, evil should come together. <laughs> Well-dressed, awesome, conniving evil should be together. <laughs> I really liked that when that started to happen. Yeah, they were so much fun to watch and like just their, their weird sort of like, you know, contentious, like trying to one-up each other, but also they're in love and like they just can't admit it to themselves. It's so good. And Chuck Bass, yeah, he's such a good bad boy. He's got, like, the daddy issues. He's, like, the poor little rich boy. And he's also... But you always just feel sorry for him. Like, when his dad dies in that big funeral episode. And, like, you just you just want to give him a hug. Even though he's also kind of a dick. Yeah. Until he tries to pimp out Blair in that one episode. Okay. Well, that was really, like, a bridge too far. That was in the season where it all went downhill. We don't talk about that season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's always that season. You know, what was it? Season two of Friday Night Lights. Yeah, there's always the we don't talk about this. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's just forget it. Hey, Karen, you had recommended, because I really haven't watched Gossip Girl. I maybe watched an episode here and there. You had recommended Bad News Blair as I the episode, that episode to watch. So thank you for that, because I watched it this morning. And um, <laughs> that's, it, it was, I, I watched it thinking, Ugh, I hate these kids. Why am I spending time with these horrible <laughs> teenagers? Never in my life would I give over a Sunday morning to spending any time with people like this. And then like when Blair and Serena go out at the end and do their own fashion shoot, I was like, I love Blair and Serena. <laughs> I love them. Awesome. I love that episode in particular because it's like, it's got, yeah, it's got that central friend drama of Blair and Serena. And then it's also just such a good Blair character study of like, you see the, you know, behind the, the rich bitch kind of facade and, like, all the, like, ways that her and her mother's relationship mm-hmm. is so messed up. And, like, and, and even even though I kind of hate Dan, like, in that episode, he's sort of, like... He's the worst! I Dan's mean, he's the, he's the worst, but then he also has, like, a brief redeeming moment when he's talking to her in the stairwell and you see a sort of, like, a bridge between the two. Like, you know, Dan is, he's a snob that doesn't think he's a snob and Blair is a snob who knows she's a snob. And they're kind of, like coming coming mm-hmm. together in a way to understand each other before going their separate ways. I have to say that there wasn't a single guy in that episode that I wanted to like get to know better or really ever see again. If there was a virus and all the boys died <laughs> and their dads, I would be fine with that. Oh, come on. You'd so want to at least fuck Chuck before the end of the world. <laughs> I mean, I think you'd be pretty good at it. No, Chuck is like. You think like, he'd be good at it? I think he's had it too easy. Mm. I, I don't think maybe he hasn't tried hard enough. Yeah. Season season one, Chuck is a he's he's a mess. He gets he gets his uh more like his bad boy like sexiness in season two. Season one, he's just sort of a mess. Yeah, I agree. Fashion wise as well. <laughs> yes, <bad> basketball. <laughs> his fashion does get better. And I mean the fashion. Okay, you know, Gossip Girl has that Sex in the City thing where they had a lot of designer clothes. You know, they would always, you know, magazines would always be covering, like, set photos of what Blair and Serena were wearing. And that's part of the appeal. I mean, it's part of why we love Downton Abbey is the clothes. And so I think Gossip Girl, more so than the OC, really touched in the clothes fantasy. Yeah, they have, they always have storylines about fashion shows and stuff. And I definitely, like bought headbands and colored tights. <laughs> I was wearing this 
another character into themselves. Is there a Twitter feed called Blair's Headbands? Honestly, there probably would have been if it had been on later. I feel like it was maybe a bit early for that kind of thing. Yeah, but... yeah it was before Twitter really took off. I think there should be, like Ma- Lady Mary's eyebrow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Blair's headband. What would she say about yeah. this? <laughs> well, before we get totally off the tangent of bad boys, because I do think that's a core thing in Buffy, obviously, as well. And I'm someone mm-hmm. who was um, very into Buffy Spike in yes, the later years. I love oh, Spike. Yes. 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 I think that scene where they have sex in the house that's falling down around them is the hottest thing I've ever seen in my life, like legit porn included. Have you watched like the YouTube, there's a, there's a cut on YouTube where they don't have the music over it and it's just like the sounds of them breathing and stuff. It's really (laughs) good. No, but I will be looking that up after this. (laughs) Um, But I just want to say like, Karen, you actually wrote a piece uh, about Gilmore Girls in defense of Jess and the Rory Jess relationship, which is, you know, I was never, I never liked any of Rory's boyfriends on this show, but I really loved your piece kind of in defense of the good girl loving the bad boy. So I, I was hoping you would mention a little bit about why you are uh, in, in support of Rory Jess as a ship. Yeah, and I think like any bad boy in a teen drama like the Chuck Blair stuff, you know, it's, it's all sort of about like this idea. I think that teen girls aren't allowed to like have badness in them. You know, they're not really allowed to explore their sexuality. They're not really allowed to be rebellious in the way that we allow boys to be. And so the bad boy is like this fantasy of you could do that. You could, you know, with this boy do these sorts of things that you're not really allowed to in your life. You could be more sexual. You could be, you know, staying out late and getting into trouble. And I think, you know, we don't really allow for, like, that kind of dirtbag rebellion in girls the way that we do in boys. And so I think, like, it functions as a sort of an attractive fantasy when you're watching it as a teen, especially where you could think, like, well, I could I could do those things with that boy because I can't really do them on my own. And I don't think, hmm. like, people people talk about how, like, oh, why are we supporting this ship because it's... You know, he's such, he's not good for her and he's so mean to her and blah, blah, blah Mm -hmm. with all these bad boys. And I think it's not really so much about that aspect of it. Like, it's about sort of the danger and excitement, not because the boy, because like women have this weird masochistic need to be like hurt by boys or something, but because like we can't explore those sides of ourselves in the same way that men get to. And so the boy becomes just sort of like a, a way that you can explore rebelliousness as a teen you know what this reminds me i just immediately started thinking of freaks and geeks while you were talking about this Mm -hmm. because i actually just it's freaks and geeks is maybe my number one favorite show of all time uh and i just rewatched the pilot this morning uh in preparation for this show uh but i've watched the whole series through many times but this reminds me of like Lindsay weir starts out she's having an identity crisis basically and she latches on to Daniel as this bad boy that she thinks maybe can, like, show show her a new way. She's not even, like, in love with him. She maybe has a crush on him. But it's just, like, an alternative to her normal life, right? Mm-hmm. But the most important relationship in Lindsay's life ends up being her friendship with Kim Kelly. Yeah. And so it's, I just, like, that is the epitome of a perfect arc for a female character is, like, the bad boy can show you the way, but the person who's really going to be important for you in that lifetime, you're not going to marry that boy 
but you might have that friend for the rest of your life and she might be able to show you something about yourself you would never discover with a boy. And Kelly is a bad boy though. She well she's a bad girl. She exhibits yeah. a lot of the behaviors I think Karen's talking about and she does give mm-hmm. Lindsay permission. And I think yeah. you know what you were saying Karen's really interesting because I think the reason that women fear doing those things is because the fear of being labeled a slut and how damaging that is in your adolescent years. And so I think women feel like they need to have a man who's, you know, sticking by them also doing these things because it kind of gets them out of the slut card a little bit. Right. Yeah. I I think that, um, especially with like the sort of sexual issue where, um, you know, girls think like, Oh, I can't, I can't like want these things in the same way, but it's sort of, you know, having like, Oh, it's just this one boy that I want this with. And so, you know, you can justify it more in your mind, I think too, like that you're not, you're not just wanting to be like a slut that you're wanting to, you know, be in this relationship with this one boy that you find exciting. The bad girl as best friend is also something, well, we see it in my so-called life Mm -hmm. and we see it in freaks and geeks also. And just like in my so-called life, Lindsay has sort of left her good girl best friend behind yes, and is now becoming friends with the bad girl. But I also feel like she's friends with those guys. Like those, those guys are, are all pretty cool and respectful to her in a way that I don't think we've seen that dynamic before. Like if some girl gets, gets involved with the quote unquote bad kids, you know, the common thing is that they're going to somehow ruin her or right. treat her badly. Yeah. Nick Andopoulos is not going to ruin Lindsay. No. No. <laughs> I mean, none of those guys, those guys are, are, okay, they have some bad habits or smoke too much weed or whatever, but they're generally okay and they seem to care for her and they seem to nurture a friendship with her, which uh, is one of the things I really love about that show. And the other thing I love is that Lindsay still, she's really smart and she never gets dumb, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. they never make her dumb to punish her for her bad friends. Um, she's smart. She's still a mathlete. Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't she go to a competition, a mathlete's yeah. competition, yeah. saves the day. And her stoner friends show up. The freaks show up and yep. they cheer her yeah. on. And I think that was such an amazing scene that you can, you can yeah. grow but you don't have to lose all of yourself. Yep. Yeah, you don't have to lose all of yourself. And your new friends, if they're real friends, will accept all of you. Mm-hmm. And um, I I was really shocked at that last scene where she doesn't go to college but heads off to follow the dead. Um, <sighs> was anybody else surprised by that? I was really surprised. I, re- I remember being, like, very touched by that because I, this finale aired when I was, like, a junior in high school. And uh, so uh, most of my friends who I referred to before as the Buffies, like, most of them are, like, the good girls who are all, like, in honors classes and stuff. Like, we were hanging out at someone's house, like, playing cards and watching Conan O'Brien on a Saturday. Like, we weren't getting drunk. But my sophomore year, I hung out with some bad girls, but I was probably the Lindsay to them, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, like they were like smoking pot on the weekends and stuff. And I was like, Oh, I have to babysit. Yes. <laughs> 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 like, um, 
but I still think so fondly of those girls and like one of them transferred and actually the last thing I did probably two days before I got on a plane and moved to Minnesota for college was went to one of their baby showers because she was having a kid and it's just like I don't know what else you could do to show like the different paths like that would be a scene on a TV show <laughs> me going to my bad girlfriend's baby shower before I got on a plane to go to college nice <laughs> I mean but I like I love that those girls didn't reject me because I was the A plus honor student they just thought <laughs> I was funny and we hung out like that was fine I, I love them for that forever. Brandy had a similar experience. I had the bad girlfriends, and then I also totally had the stoner dude friends, and I was the only girl. Um, but, yeah, I was still the geeky girl in the AP class and doing drama club. But I think because I was funny is how I could get into those groups. <laughs> I think that really is, yeah, like, because I was funny, like, I could be in a lot of different groups and hang out with a lot of different kinds of people in high school. I was always very involved in different activities and very much a goody two-shoes in a lot of ways. But because of that sarcastic sense of humor, a lot of different kinds of people liked having me around. So uh, I think it was great. As a future writer, it was great to hang out with a ton of different <laughs> kinds of people. <laughs> very, very true. I mean, I even had like the classic teen movie thing where I finally got invited to the cool kids party, like the summer before <laughs> college, because this stoner dude thought it was funny in a math class. And so that's why I got to comment. All those bitches stared me down. And I was like, yeah, this isn't my world. <laughs> but I went to that party. Oh, my God. Can we just have a little therapy session? <laughs> that's what this is, though. These shows are therapy sessions they are. in a way, right? No, I was like, I was like not a, like a super popular kid in high school. I was smart, so that wasn't cool. And I was sort of an art kid, which was also not that cool. Um, this is why Lindsay Weir is kind of a role model for me out of all of these teen shows. When I look at her and think, so she's really smart and she got to hang around with the bad kids and it turned out fine and everyone was great. And I thought, yeah. I wish I had been Lindsay Weir. I wish I had been brave enough to be Lindsay Weir in high school, frankly. High school is definitely one of those things where you're you're trying to test out your limits and you kind of are putting baby steps into like the things that you will become later in life, but you're not all the way. I feel like most of us were pretty, unless we were the cool kids, we were pretty like scaled back on our rebellious phases. At least I was in high school. Those kids feel the same thing. Like my, my little sister actually was one of the super cool kids. One of the kids who was like sneaking out, doing drugs in, uh, doing drugs. I mean like taking a puff of pot, but that was kind of a big deal at our high school. <laughs> but then, so she went from being in the cool bad girls group in junior high to being like a, a cheerleader and like legit, like popular girl in high school, like dating the quarterback kind of girl. And she has all these same thoughts, even looking back, you know, she would have been like the star of the show. She doesn't feel like she was looking back on this stuff. Everyone's in their own little world. Like everyone thinks everyone else is judging them, but really everyone's just obsessed with themselves. Right. And that's part of the appeal of these narratives. Even as you get to be an adult, I don't think that feeling ever really goes away. Like, I feel like people in the office are probably noticing what's going on with me way more than they really are. Right. Do you think that's because of these, you know, societal cues that we've gotten since we were, you know, babies as women is that constantly look at how people are looking at you. Judge yourself because you're constantly being judged by society. And is that why we love these teen shows? Because part of us are still dealing with that. Absolutely. 
for sure. I think that's why I I relate to Freaks and Geeks and I don't have that much patience for the rich kid teen shows because I'm sort of looking for myself in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. The rich kid teen shows are like the escapism element is part of it for me as well there. You know, it's the same reason I would watch like Scandal or something. I don't mm-hmm. see myself in Scandal, but like the the soap opera escapism is definitely similar to why I liked Gossip Girl. Yeah, I think like the teen, the ones that are rich for me are like, it's it's a very attractive fantasy because it's like, there's there's a way that they can be like gloriously selfish in a way that I don't think like... I could be in my real life or that any of us could really be, you know, like they, they can make these huge mistakes and they can kind of, you know, make these like really satisfying, but bad decisions. And, you know, I think that's part of the fantasy is that, you know, the way that they are just able to do ridiculous things and like be larger than life in their, you know, rich kid little worlds. Can we just talk a little bit about the sexual politics of of some of these shows? I do feel like the guys get away with being really awful and the girls don't. I still feel like there's a lot of slut shaming going on with with the girls. I mean, I'm thinking of Gossip Girl and Dan's little sister. Oh, um, yeah. Jenny. Oh, right? poor Jenny. Jenny, yeah. Um, so some of the few, few episodes I've seen. But I feel like like she can't she can't make any mistakes because she gets she'll be ruined while chuck just for example can do whatever the fuck he wants and nobody judges him and nobody cares yeah or you look at friday night lights and it's like there's riggins who actually is fucking every girl that comes along (laughs) and then there's tyra who doesn't even have a boyfriend and yet is somehow perceived as being the town slut because she's what pretty and blonde like right uh yeah I think that's a real element as well. And I think, yeah, like, especially in even more realistic shows like Gilmore Girls, where there was definitely this feeling that when, you know, the season two Rory Jess stuff was happening, that people were like, didn't want her to be with Jess because he was going to be a bad influence on her, you know, whatever that means, which of course we do know <laughs> what it means. And you She know, wouldn't get into Harvard. Even though her mom, you know, prided herself on being, you know, very like open about sex and, you know, kind of, I think, she Lorelai would have thought herself as sex positive and yet you know she's warning Rory like oh you know you can't you can't date him you can't be with him you know he's he's a bad influence on you he's gonna he's gonna get you into trouble have we ever seen a teen story where a girl is like I want to have sex she gets on birth control and she knows about safe sex and people aren't worried about her I don't know if we've ever seen Friday Night Lights, I think that the coach's daughter. Julie? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And that show, you know, bringing up, I think actually it's very deliberate about its comparison of Tyra and Regan's because obviously they start out the show supposedly a couple and uh, then go their separate ways. But then they have that storyline with Julie where she's the one and the title of the episode where they have sex is, I think we should have sex. And that's her line. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And then they also have a really interesting abortion storyline with Becky as well. I think they really tried to come at it with like from like every angle. Um, And I don't necessarily my mind classify that as a teen show for some reason, even though most of the characters are teens. But I think it's it's one of the best shows a teen person could watch to see this array of different uh, lives going on. Yeah, compare that with One Tree Hill, which I unfortunately did watch, and it's just (laughs) fucking horrible. (laughs) Where they get married? 
Like that couple, I can't even remember their names, but it's like the dorky girl and the football guy and they like have this love and then they get married. They're like married in high school. It's like, what world? I, nobody was married at my high school. I mean, that's just like so yeah. rare. I don't know. That story, whatever. I'm not going to recommend it. Yeah, so then we got 90210 with the 28-year-olds playing. I think Luke Barry was like 31. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't allowed to watch 90210 when I was a kid, which means I watched it all the time at my friend's house. (laughs) (laughs) And it is kind of, I think that was the show that was like the explosion that caused teen shows to become its own genre, right? And it was definitely like, you know, one of those rich kid kind of shows, which are become so popular. (sighs) Yes, but then you relate with, you relate to Brenda, the outsider, moving to Beverly Hills from Minnesota and falling in love with the bad boy who conveniently, like, lives alone because his dad <laughs> is a criminal or something. And he's 35 <laughs> years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he can live alone. He's over 18. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, talking about, like, how media affects the way teens see themselves, like, there's been a big problem in recent years with teenage boys, like, you know, using all these protein powders and things and because you know it does it does affect you, you think like, oh, should I look like that? And of course obviously like those people have like five years on you, which is a lot of years when you're that age. And a personal trainer. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean body image issues and and eating disorders among men has gone up a lot. And I agree, Karen. I think it is this warped view of what you're supposed to look like at that age and it's affecting both genders now. And I will say, like, uh, related to that as far as, you know, seeing yourself on screen, Friday Night Lights is the only show we've mentioned so far that has minority characters, really. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, I was racking my brains trying to think if I'd ever watched a teen show that uh, wasn't just about white people, and the answer is no. I mean, unless it's one of those ones like Degrassi, where it's very clearly, mm-hmm. like, you know, an after-school special kind of thing. Yeah, but even that could be a lot more diverse than it is. I don't know. And I will say, like, as far as shows that are on now, because most of these shows we're talking about have been off the air for five to ten years, at least. Um, I watch Faking It on MTV, which I think is great for uh, exploring issues of sexuality. Like, most of the main characters are gay. It has the first intersex character that's one of the core characters I've ever seen on TV. Uh, And yet they're all white. And this is supposed to be set in Texas. So you're saying Shonda Rhimes needs to make a teen show? Yeah. I would love that. Saying exactly fucking that. I have had that thought before. And um, I will say that there is a Hulu show called East Los High, which is all about Latino teenagers. I've tried to watch it. I found it very clunky. But it's going into season four, so it obviously has an audience. Like, there are teens out there who are, like, really, really wanting to see themselves on screen. Because uh, this show's a big hit, and but it's it's only on Hulu, so Glee for all its faults was fairly diverse. True, oh, yeah. although That's a good even point. though its main characters are still white, but I mean it has like a, a good supporting cast that gets storylines. I think we should also discuss uh, what we would really like to see in a teen show or any niches we think uh, are ripe to be filled. Like personally, I would love to see a teen show about marching band because that was a big part of my. <laughs> Identity as a high schooler. Yes, yes, and I yes. Think, you know, we, we've had the Glee choir kind of experience, and so I feel like there's 
there's a lot of good things that we could do with marching bands as well. So someone write that. <laughs> well, you know, one thing we forgot to mention is High School Musical, which was a Disney movie. It's actually quite diverse. And I loved it because I did High School Musicals. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it too. And I think we were probably like 21, 22 when that came out. And I was like, this is great. I know this is marketed to 13 year olds. But no, and what was interesting it. is when that came out, I worked at the Boys and Girls Club and I ran teen programs as my first job out of college. And we would put that movie on all the time. And even all the, like, really tough kids. Then we put on High School Musical, and they'd all sing along. It appealed to everyone. That And it was such a good, it was a good source of media that everybody loved. And it was diverse. It had great music. That movie is beloved. The Disney movies and the Disney shows are a lot more diverse. Yeah, I think that is where a lot of that storytelling is happening. And Nickelodeon, as well, has diverse shows. But they are aimed a little bit directly towards teens and tweens in a way where like what I tend to watch on network or MTV is trying to do that crossover thing of appealing to both teens and adults. Um, so I think it would be nice to see more money, more mainstream network money thrown towards projects that are as diverse as what they're doing on Disney and Nickelodeon. Okay. Then I want a teen show that is about like geeky loser kids solid and I don't want them to be, to be played by gorgeous movie stars. I want them to be played by normal <laughs> kids, normal looking kids. I want them to be smart and I don't want them to be pathetic. And ha, ah, some fat kids would be great without any oh, yes. fat jokes, which leads me to talk about huge. Yeah, which, I was just gonna mention that. <laughs> which was on ABC Family. Also another Winnie Holtzman one season yep. wonder. It's very frustrating, but I thought huge was fabulous um not just because i thought it was really well written but also just in the way it dealt with all the characters and the complex storylines and it and this is at a fat camp right so all the kids um may have all been you know heavy that's what they had in common but they had they were very different kids and they yeah. had very different lives and romances and interests and there was LARPing Shannon there was LARPing <laughs> so, so yeah huge was was a, a great show and I'd love to see more of that kind of thing but obviously I should not be a network executive because that show got killed after a season yeah and that's too bad because it was on ABC family right Mm -hmm. And they yep. have had they've had success with shows like The Fosters or Secret Life of American Teenager, where they are examining uh, more of a niche kind of thing. Like yeah, I love you know. Switched at Birth, which yeah, has like so much cool stuff about one. deaf culture. There are so many of these teen shows from you know Buffy to the OC to Nine Hundred Two and O that are set in California, and they're always like you know, pretty much set in the white, you know, most of them actually have scenes filmed at Beverly Hills High School. <laughs> like, uh, I think that's a disappointment. And like I said, Isla's High exists, but what I would like to see is an actual, like an actual show set at a public school in the middle of LA where it's really diverse. Like I, I work in Koreatown and I live on the edge of where um, Pico Union and Koreatown slam into each other. Like, there's so much diversity. Like the high schools around here are have massively different ethnic groups together every day and it's perfectly normal. And it's very strange that you never see that reflected on screen to me because that's my daily life seeing that. So that's really what I would like to see is like, what is a high school smack dab in the middle of LA really look like? 
that could be a great, great show. Yeah, or I mean, even outside of LA, like, there's so many more, like, interesting stories you could tell looking at just not just, like, the rich upper crust of white society, but, like, even, you know, rich people in other ethnic groups or, you know, <laughs> anything like that. So, yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's definitely, like, when, when one of those gets going, it's going to be a big hit. All right, so we wanted to end the podcast with a shout-out to an obs- maybe more obscure teen show that we've loved that maybe we want to encourage people to check out. Okay, I will start. Um, this is may or may not be obscure depending on whether you are a cult fan, but Degrassi High, uh, which was made in my great homeland of Canada, um, was on for a couple seasons, uh, 89 to 91. It uh, came after Degrassi Junior High, which came after the kids of Degrassi Street. And this whole series, seriously, this whole series focused on this community, which was kind of a working class, lower middle class community in Toronto, and the kids who live there. And Kids of Degrassi Street was such a big hit that it just kept going as the kids got older. Um, Not quite ending with Degrassi High, but I think that's sort of one of the most famous ones. So Degrassi High got syndicated, uh, picked up by American Networks, and I think that's where the cult fandom, you know, sort of started. Yeah, I watched it back in the day, for sure. Right. So I I really love Degrassi High. I mean, partly just because the storylines are great. They're not rich kids and they tackle all of these issues. Remember, this is late 80s, early 90s. They talk about AIDS. They talk about abortion. They talk about racism. They talk about like everything that I don't think American teen shows were really touching. Um, and when they ended up being syndicated or redistributed on American shows, um, the abortion episodes got censored or not shown at all (laughs) or not shown at all. So that gives you an idea of how scared um, in the 2000s U.S. broadcasters were of, of what Degrassi High was talking about. But it's a it's great. It's a great show. And Um, I would encourage people who don't know about it, who want to see a very different kind of teen show to look it up. And then also just going to replug Huge, which I just adored. It was on ABC Family. I'm sure you can see it somewhere now. And it's it's wonderful from the makers of My So-Called Life. I want to give a shout out to a show. I don't know if it would hold up if you could see it anywhere today. I wish you could see it. I'm hoping it'll show up on like Netflix or something. It's a Disney Channel original series from when I was about 13 or 14 called Flash Forward. I remember that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not related to the lost ripoff show Flash Flash Forward that was on ABC <laughs> like five years ago. Um, but this are Ben Foster and Jewel State, who all obviously both went on to uh, better careers and have are now popular actors in various things. Uh, but they were like best friends who had grown up together and were dealing with the concept of being boy girl best friends platonically as they were entering teenage years. And I would just love that show when it was on and uh, would love to be able to revisit it. And because I have, a, I just have a feeling it would hold up. Like I just <laughs> feel like it wasn't like a full house kind of a thing. It was more serious. It was maybe more on the Degrassi ends of things where you know, you, those characters would still work. Tucker and Rebecca would still <laughs> be, be people I would want to spend time with now. But that was like my favorite show because I was about the same age as them when it was on. And I just loved it. 
when I was 12 and 13. So I hope it shows up somewhere. Well, I will jump on the Jewel State bandwagon because LA Complex is one of my all-time favorite shows. <laughs> oh, I love LA Complex. I love it too. It's great. It's technically not about teens, as Brandy brought up in the notes, but it, it's about 20-somethings moving to LA to try and make it. But they all live in this hotel, so it's got that high school feel. It's kind of Melrose Place kind of thing yeah, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally. It's like in between, yeah. It has all the elements of a teen show you know, they're close enough to the teen years that it's got all that going on. And it has some of the best storylines I've ever seen. Uh, it is somewhat diverse of a cast. Uh, Keldrick King has one of the most interesting storylines about dealing with being gay and what that means to his career uh, that I've never really seen in any other show. And, of course, Jules State is Raquel. Phenomenal, phenomenal, Amazing. phenomenal. I love her so much. She's great. Yeah, and it was such a bummer because it ended so well, and it was like, can we get more seasons? <laughs> it was so great. Um, I Anytime I'm having, like, a really tough time, throw on some L.A. Complex. It holds up. It's great. Oh, and what country does that show come from? Canada. 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 I'm pretty sure, yeah, my show was Canadian, too. Yep. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. And actually, Martin Garrow, who created it, um, he now creates created Blind Spot, which is a totally different type of show. I haven't watched it, but um, I'm kind of hoping he comes back to the teen world because I love LA Complex. Well, I don't know about obscure, but I'm enjoying right now watching MTV Scream, which is on. If you like a good, I like Scream too. <laughs> and I think MTV teen shows are they have they're always kind of aimed at that crossover audience. Um, I've enjoyed some of the other ones before, like Faking It and Teen Wolf. Um, so this is another one that is good. It's a genre show, but it's also a good teen drama. So I checked that out. Well, thank you, Karen, for coming on the show and giving all Thank you all for your, having me. All your insight into teen shows and really excited to see. Maybe there'll be some good teen shows this fall that we can discuss yeah. later on. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Downton Gabby, Facebook at Downton Gabby, Tumblr at DowntonGabby.tumblr.com. Let us know what your favorite teen shows are. And if there's one you want us to binge and talk about, let us know. You and I will be young for you.